Hi, everyone. I'm Julia, and welcome to Health Matters. Um, this is where we're talking to amazing founders and clinicians, academics, and investors, all on the front line of health innovation. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm Julia, I'm a GP at, or a general partner at Local Globe uh, and Latitude, where I lead our investments in health. And uh, this is my co-host, Acta. Hi, everybody. Um, nice to have you here. Um, my um, my career is now, um, I used to be a founder, so I set up a business in um, carbon saving, and I now invest um, in venture from carbon to health to um, femtech. And I'm also a non-exec director at the Royal Free London NHS Foundation Trust and vice chair of the charity, and very pleased to be here. Um, I'm also really pleased to um, welcome Derelyn, who's a colleague of ours at the Royal Free. She's a um, um, she's got clinical responsibilities in haematology and she's clinical director of research and innovation at the Royal Free and also a senior lecturer in haematology at UCL and co-clinical director of the NCL Cancer Alliance and chair of the European Working Group on Goucher Disease. Um, I don't, one of our first questions should be how you managed to fit all that in, Derelyn. <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it's always a challenge, but a lot of the work that I do is all aligned together and it's all very patient and research focused, which I, I think means making fitting it in is a little bit easier. That's great. Thank you. Um, can I just ask one, uh, one question we had was about, um, you've got such a fascinating and, and challenging role we'd love to hear a little bit more about it and how like you were mentioning both of the clinical as well as the research responsibilities come come together yeah thank you so um i'm a hematologist or blood doctor by background and the reason why i chose to go into hematology was because my research in oxford many years ago was around a particular type of cell called a macrophage which is a um, sort of immune cell so when I came to the Royal Free um, 20 years ago as a haematologist I was working with one of my colleagues here and he showed me some slides from a patient with a condition called Gaucher disease and in fact the cell which is abnormal in Gaucher disease are macrophages so he said what's this and I said well it's the macrophages and it's Gaucher disease and um, that one single interaction has really formed the rest of my career. So, so with that, I got involved with the Gaucher practice at the Royal Free and have worked with patients with haematology, but particular rare genetic disorders uh, for the last, um, the last 20 years. And because they're rare disorders, there's lots to find out both about their conditions and about ways of treating people and uh, bringing them to better life, better life expectancy, um, more able to support their families and uh, quicker diagnosis and so on. So my clinical work has always been really well aligned with my research because of this area of rare disorders. And because I've worked um, in research, I've got involved in that very uh, generally in the trust now as the research director or the clinical research director and that in fact came about as a result of um, some of the work that I was doing during Covid that was also supported by the Royal Free Charity and it was very much around bringing our 
clinicians who had research ideas all together so that they could use those ideas to create clinical trials and um, innovation projects so that we could look after our patients with COVID uh, more effectively. Thank you so much. That it's really, um, really, really interesting. Akta, do you do you want to take from here? Yep. So um, we've got another question on um, the research in COVID a bit later on, but um, this is a question that we ask all our guests on um, on this um, um, clubhouse event, which is that where where do you think in your career that tech has had the biggest impact on patient care? I think that's a really um, amazing question. And it's one that I think will evolve over time because it's almost every every year there's a new innovation which has a huge impact. I think for me currently the biggest technological innovation relates to our ability to do full gene sequencing in patients. And while some of that is around the processing of DNA and the actual sequencing, a lot of it is around data handling, because when you do that genetic sequencing, you create absolutely masses of data. And um, that needs to be evaluated and processed and presented back to clinicians in a way that's easily understood. If we want to make earlier diagnosis for patients with rare disorders or any genetic condition, that is uh, that processing of genetic uh, information and gene sequencing is really key. So I think in my particular area and also um, in cancer services, which I also look after, that's uh, been really impactful and brought earlier diagnosis and also opportunities for new and different treatments for patients. And it's so amazing to hear you say that because um, it's actually obviously been one, one of the companies that we've invested in has been Oxford Nanopore, but we're also really excited about um, yeah the advances obviously that um, that that the gene sequencing and DNA sequencing has enabled us to do in terms of, of earlier diagnosis. Um, I just wanted to, to to go back slightly. You were mentioning earlier about. The, the research uh, activities that you and your team have done. And, and obviously there's been a lot of, or been great need for fast and focused research during the pandemic. And, and just, just wondered what were some of the, um, yeah, what, what were some of the research activities that you've been able to be a part of and how you and your team have been able to, to cope with the, I guess with with the demand for lots of research to have to have had to take in place. Mm. Thanks. So we we brought together a research and innovation group that met uh, regularly throughout the whole of the last um, eighteen months or so, and we looked at all of the different data that we could see emerging that started to tell us about the picture of patients uh, with COVID. And then um, from that, people started to create hypotheses and think about ways of, of intervening. And that was at all sorts of different levels. So one thing that we noticed early on was that patients um, in ITU who were on ventilators to um, have better ventilatory function, better lung function, if they lie on their fronts. And that's called proning. And so we had literally armies of some of our surgeons who couldn't operate because of the, the, the pandemic, 
Um, so armies of surgeons walking around ITU and helping to turn patients over. And it takes six people to safely turn a patient over and then six hours later, turn them back again. And so one of the things we worked on with our consultants in ITU was to create something called a proning board, which is um, a board with an intelligent measurement system, which allows us to safely and easily turn patients over. And that's one of the areas of work that was very specific and innovative at the, uh, the Royal Free. We're working now on a, um, a second version of that with pressure sensors that will uh, help us to keep patients even safer. I think that was an amazing collaboration. We worked with a Royal Free charity and also with uh, a couple of, um, of small uh, industry areas, uh, an architect and also a, a medical pressure measurement um, company to create these boards and have now started to um, work with other hospitals so that we can deliver those to other people too. So that was one area. Um, our teams also worked in the national trials, such as the recovery trial, which brought about the understanding that giving people low doses of steroids when they came into hospital with COVID was really beneficial. So we recruited several hundred of our patients into that study. And that's had huge impact because it's a very simple and actually quite um, cheap intervention that makes a huge impact on patients. Um, I think from my perspective, watching you guys go during the, the pandemic period, it felt like it was kind of second nature for you to spot patterns and try and um, find solutions for them. And I found it absolutely amazing that you were doing that at the same time as having to deal with the enormous volume of additional work that you got. So um, it was just fantastic to watch. Um, my next question leads also quite nicely from what you were discussing um, about the innovations that you came up with, because you mentioned working with an architect and um, a pressure sensor um, company. And um, a lot of the listeners to this event will um, either in, are very interested in um, small businesses, either from founding them or investing in them. Um, so um, my question is, how do you think that these smaller businesses can help you um, with, with, your, with your innovation or bring their own innovations into a larger trust such as the Royal Free? I think there's there's huge potential for working with small businesses because um, we have ideas and uh, SMEs have our ideas. We can bring those together and create ways of testing them and of solving problems. So um, there's also there's lots of programmes within the NHS grant giving bodies, the NIHR and so on, which actively encourage those sorts of collaborations. I think if, if people do have an idea or they can see a solution to something they can see going on in the NHS, then approaching research directors in the trusts or clinicians that they might know and trying to formulate a, a programme that that can then be used to test the intervention is, uh, is a really helpful thing to do. And we do through R&D have lots of governance structures. It's always a, a bit of anxiety about working with industry, but this is something that we're used to doing and we have um, structures and contractual arrangements that keep everybody safe and all of the patient's data, for example, safe within those relationships. I think that, that that's really helpful to know. So it it sounds as though the best way then therefore is, is actually to reach out to 
individuals and to form um, individual partnerships where there is there's mutual interest in an area and and find collaborate you know collab opportunities to collaborate that way um, and is that is that how you think I guess if someone who was interested in research and innovation and as a practitioner would they like to and would they like to ideally partner with commercial organizations, whether it's like the larger US tech companies like Google Health or Microsoft or smaller venture led companies or venture backed companies um, that are uh, that that may also have been coming out of universities or or do you see that um, I mean, it sounds as though you do see that that uh, that private company interventions or collaborations are possible. But just wondering if you have a preference for the type of uh, the type of partnerships that you that you strike. I think both of those, the whole range and spectrum, are possible. Um, so people, I think, work best when they're working in an area that they're passionate about. And so when there is uh, a small business passionate about a particular innovation and they're working in partnership with a clinician who has the same passions, I think that's a really fruitful collaboration. And that clinician can then champion that, take it through the various processes in the, in the hospital and we can work out how best to deliver that. They can work on joint grant applications, for example. When it's bigger tech and bigger companies, that that probably re requires a commensurately larger rollout and testing of the innovation. And then that probably re um, requires somebody at board level to have a discussion and to form a strategic partnership that, again, has a, a different sort of governance around it. Um, I think it depends on the problem, the patient need and the problem that needs to be solved as to which of those is the right direction. And I, th I guess we're seeing quite a lot of that at the Royal Free with some of the larger scale partnerships we've got, which require quite a lot of effort. And then the the kind of smaller ventures, which, you know, at board level we don't hear about, but sound like they're, you know, really, really helpful. Um, so my question is a, a bit connected to that, too, which is that um, do you think that the kind of the proliferation of tech companies um, involved with health has got to the stage where, it gets to second nature that you start working with them. So is it at the same level as it would be if you were, for example, part partnering with a pharmaceutical company, which of course, you know, you do all the time, or is it still a sort of a new thing? Um, you know, does it come after a whole bunch of layers? Yeah, I, th I think the principles are the same um, around um, uh, openness in the collaboration and then uh, care with formulating the question and with um, with patient data and anonymization and and compliance and so on. So I, th I think the principle of those collaborations are the same. One thing that we see is that we, we also partner, of course, with the university and we have a lot of academics uh, working with us. And sometimes the the tech companies or the, the small um, pharma companies actually are coming out of uh, our own clinicians and our own academics and so there's a great appetite for those sorts of collaborations to deliver better health care. That's really interesting, thank you. Um, Julie, do you want and to take the next question? Yeah, I'm just wondering, I mean, if you if we think about 
tech innovation and working the way that, that you've described, what, what do you see as some of the, the biggest risks or challenges? Um, I, I think we there is obviously a, a challenge around ensuring that there's confidence in our patient population and our, uh, our hospital um, board and governors and so on to ensure that everything is being done in the correct way. And I think we need to be completely sure that that our um, our patients and our hospital is safe and protected in those collaborations. So I think there's a governance, um, not risk, but there is governance that needs to be done to ensure confidence and safety. Um, I suspect there, there's, a, there's also a risk in implementation, which is that the more technical the product is, I guess the more likely it is that it will reach certain areas of our population and not others. And it's very important that we address inequalities in all aspects of our healthcare, uh, not least technical inequalities. So it's, um, I wouldn't like to be involved, for example, in an innovation which would only address one sector of the population and leads to an increased um, digital divide between different groups. So I suspect that's a risk that we need to think about. Thank you, that's super helpful. Um, Deverlyn, you talked a bit earlier about how um, you've got structures in place and things to um, find innovative companies to work for, work with. but. Can you elaborate on that? For example, if I was, a, you know, somebody, a researcher in a university with a fantastic idea and some investment behind me, how, how would I reach somebody like you? Or if you equally, if you wanted to work with a sort of a research team, um, how would you go about looking for them? Um, I think if you're a company and looking for a research team, then all of the, the hospitals will have R&D departments and will be able to put you in touch with clinical researchers. And the universities will have innovation hubs and uh, business teams who, again, would be able to put you in touch with the right sort of people. Um, clinicians and scientists are often at, at relevant conferences. So if you're interested in a a specific disease area or technological area, there's likely to be people speaking. And I find that's the way that people often get in touch with me. I give a talk in one of my areas and then somebody will drop me a line with a suggestion about um, a way that we could work together or, or improve healthcare in that area. So it, I think it's about, um, about the, the traditional contacts within the hospitals, but also generally just about networking and people knowing their own disease areas and who's around in those areas. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, I'd love to ask a little bit about the work that you've done with the, with the GoShake community. Um, I'm obviously really, really curious. I'm very interested in, in work with rare diseases in, in general. Um, and just curious, what have you found to be the most impactful ways to yeah, to impact a rare condition. You mentioned also work with other rare conditions at the Royal Free. Um, and in particular, how how you think that tech is being used to advance an understanding of the disease or how, what's the most impactful use of technology? So I think, I think generally in rare disorders and, and in other disorders such as cancer, 
the, the greatest impact that we can have is on earlier diagnosis because that means that our interventions are generally more effective. Now, the problem with rare disorders is that medics from um, being students are told to think of the most common conditions first. And we hear phrases like hen's teeth and uh, rocking horse hooves and, and so on when we start to talk about rare conditions in our differential diagnosis. And so it's generally, historically, has been deprioritised. So one of the things that I've worked on um, during my career as a, as a clinician has to been to try to raise awareness of, of conditions like this, talking at meetings and conferences and um, grand rounds at different hospitals. The problem with that, though, is that it's very much chance. So I may have been talking at a, a meeting somewhere and there may be somebody in the audience who recognises the symptoms I'm talking about and then goes and makes a positive diagnosis in a patient. But I can't possibly talk to everybody about the conditions uh, that I care for. So I think that's where technology is really important because it can be used not only for education, but also for automated analysis of patient symptoms. And so machine learning and AI now, particularly in primary care data, to suggest diagnosis from either patterns of healthcare use or of symptoms to then suggest that diagnosis, which we can then uh, make a referral for a patient or in fact go to the genetic testing that I mentioned, brings about earlier diagnosis and therefore more effective treatment. So that's very much a work in progress, but there are lots of efforts being done as to how AI could be used in that earlier diagnosis algorithms. And I think they will reap huge rewards for our patient community in the, the medium to longer term. I, I think that sounds sounds brilliant. I, I, I mean, I remember um, when I was taking my daughter to the weighing clinic when she was um, a, a newborn and the, the nurses there, like you say, they're not trained to spot um, they're, they're really not trained to spot anything wrong with with uh, with with children. I, I don't think they're they're more that the thing that they're looking out for most is does the mum have have uh, is a mum clinically depressed? Um, but I was wondering, what do you think needs to be put into place in order for this automated analysis to be able to take place? Because even data, I mean, maybe it has moved on since, but data is only really being added into a red book as opposed to into a medical record. So just like how, how do the systems need to evolve in order to capture this data in order to flag the very early diagnoses? So that's a, a really good question. So the, the data obviously needs to be digitized and that process needs to be easy and not very labor intensive because we don't have workforce to be spending lots of time entering lots of data. So we need easy mechanisms of, um, of data entry, be it by um, voice recognition or la natural language processing or um, coding to get the data. And then we need um, automated algorithms which recognise constellations of patient symptoms and test uh, the diagnoses. And those need to be themselves tested 
against the diagnoses of patients who we know have, have conditions and then that used back to improve the algorithms. And then we need um, ways of transferring that data back to our primary care clinical teams with some level of understanding so that they can then actually have real life conversations with patients to suggest these diagnoses. So there are a number of steps that's involved um, with that. And I think technology can help at all levels. So it may be again that rather than having expertise in every primary care centre and with every GP about conditions like this, using a, a system where we have um, remote visits to patients from somebody who understands the condition and can guide them then through the healthcare system uh, might be a way forward for that. And then also using technology for patients to have an integrated record of their healthcare. So rare disease patients often travel through many different healthcare providers over many years before they have a successful diagnosis. And that can be a real challenge um, and really wearing, particularly for parents of children with who ultimately are diagnosed with a rare disease, telling the story again and again. If patients have a digitised record that can be transferred with them as they move around the healthcare system, so they don't have to have repeats of tests or tell the story again or, or somehow get a transfer of radiology from one hospital to another, I think that empowers them and that will also lead to earlier diagnosis. Sounds absolutely brilliant. Um, uh, Acta, do you have any other other questions or any other questions from our from our guests in the room? Um, I had one question actually, Daryllyn. You, you mentioned the kind of remote um, consultations and things, um, and we also mentioned the kind of digital divide. Where do you think um, where do you think that sits at the moment? Because obviously, there's lots of people who understand that there are risks of going into hospital. Um, so we've heard sort of um, a lot of information about how things have moved um, more um, online and remote um, consultations. But how, how do you think the patients are finding that and also how the clinicians are finding dealing with that? Um, I think it, I think it's quite variable, actually. So there are some patients who absolutely need to come to hospital for tests or examinations and so on there are others in whom it's an information gathering and that um, theoretically can be done remotely either by a telephone or a video consultation and we do try to use telephones for people who may not be able to use video but I think there's something which is very important for patients about a face-to-face -face interaction there is a lot more to the consultation than just the simple extraction of information and so I think patients find that quite difficult sometimes because their body language or the empathy may be quite difficult over the telephone and um, it's the therapeutic nature of that consultation is can also uh, be difficult to achieve so I think there, there is something that will be important about us understanding again and revisiting what are the main important features of a consultation and seeing what we can do to, to bring those out in virtual consultations. It may be that we can't achieve all of them, 
Um, but I think there is probably something that we can do on a very human level to make those virtual consultations much more effective and satisfactory for patients. Um, there is, there is, of course, the digital divide and not everybody has digital devices or access to Wi-Fi. And I think that's something really important that we also need to address. And it's, it's probably going to be a balance that's run by um, people like you, the clinicians who both know your patients and know when, when and what you need to look for in person and what you can do online. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that how that pans out. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. So patients who I've seen in um, my, my patients in my rare disease practice, I see every, twice a year for many years. Um, they've got a genetic condition. It, it doesn't go away. And so I can pick up the phone to them and I know them. So yeah. I find it easy then to have that conversation. But for people that I've never met before, there's something that's actually quite difficult about doing that. I, I'm never quite sure whether I've I've got the right level of um, information and and the um, understanding from that. So I think for new consultations, there's something quite important about how we do it and also when when possible, I think, doing that in person. Thank you very much. That's really interesting. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, if there are no other questions, um, Darlin, is there anything else you think um, you, you'd like to mention or anything that we haven't covered so far? I don't, I don't think so, Julia. Just to say, you know, thank you very much for inviting me. I think research is absolutely fundamental to um, improving and developing healthcare, and um, and collaboration is actually really essential within that. So, really happy to discuss any collaborations um, with anyone who has any interest. Really, I'd love to talk about uh, our work and about innovation. So, I think it's a really exciting time. And thank you for joining us, Daryl. it was it's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. You've been um, such a delightful guest and learned so much um, from you. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy diary. Um, really, really appreciate it and and really um, grateful for all of the work that you do. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.